You're listening to the Docs and More podcast with Lovejeet Daliwal. This week I'm joined by a multi-award-winning Canadian filmmaker who's produced and directed over 30 films. He has a style that focuses on powerful personalities and past subject of his films include Lou Wasserman, a titan of Universal Studios and the Rolling Stones promoter Michael Cole. This year, his latest documentary, Made You Look, A True Story About Fake Art, has been released and is currently screening at documentary festivals. Barry Averidge, welcome to the Docs and More podcast. Uh, thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Tell me how you came across this incredible story. Well, I had made a, a documentary about three years earlier called Blurred Lines Inside the Art World that looked at really the vagaries and the process of, of uh, how art is sold. And I was incredibly intrigued by that. And then when my producing partner, Jay Hennick, made this story aware to me, I wasn't aware of it. Uh, then I became instantly intrigued by it because it's the ultimate crime documentary. It's the ultimate catch-me-if-you-can film. The characters are uh, beyond unbelievable. And uh, I saw a story in Vanity Fair, uh, and then ultimately I just dove in and, and had to make this film. Now, Anne Friedman seems like such a fascinating character. What was she like, and, and was she easy to persuade to take part in the film? The, the the film, which is called Made You Look, centers around the largest art fraud in U.S. history. 60 paintings, $80 million of, of fake art that was sold over a period of 10 years through the oldest and, and at one time one of the most prestigious art galleries in North America called the Nodler Gallery. The Nodler Gallery, which was uh, under the helms, helmsmanship of uh, Ann Friedman as its executive director, Uh, The gallery itself was owned by Michael Hammer, uh, grandson of the great uh, Armin Hammer, who was a great art collector as well, an industrialist. And Anne worked at the Nodler Gallery for over 30 years uh, as somebody that ran the gallery uh, on the Upper East Side and saw uh, probably some of the greatest sales and changes in the art world. She is an academic a relentless salesperson, an art lover. Uh, And uh, over a period of 10 years, this shadowy couple, a husband and wife team by the name of Carlos Bergantinos Diaz and his life partner slash wife, mother of their child, uh, by the name of Glafira Rosales, brought in uh, fakes, uh, some of the greatest abstract expressionist artists of their time, Robert Motherwell, Jackson Pollock, uh, Mark Rothko, Diebenkorn, and on and on and on. And Ann Friedman would take this art on consignment and then sell it to uh, collectors for uh, an outrageous amount of money, millions and millions of dollars. And behind all of it was a uh, an unassuming uh, but somewhat complicit artist, Pei Shen Quinn from Shanghai, who was living in... Uh, in New York at the time, who Glafira Rosales and uh, Carlos Bergantinos had uh, uh, basically approached him as a brilliant artist to create these fake works of art. And and the underlying question in the film is, we know who the villains are, we know who was complicit, and Friedman as the head of the Nodler Gallery, did she know, did she conspire, or was she merely a pawn in a great con? Was she taken in 
uh, and fooled, just like the art collectors themselves. I've got to say, you're really kind of left in two minds as to whether she was in on it or not. And, and can, I mean, can you tell you were actually there with her? Do you think she was in on it? Well, yes. I mean, I, I spent uh, probably nearly 40 hours uh, with her, filming her, and, and having endless conversations with her. Anne Friedman is sort of your eccentric aunt who sends you newspaper clippings and, uh, and every lunch and dinner and drink and glass of wine we had, I would leave with uh, 50 or 60 uh, pieces of paper and photocopies and everything supporting her side of the fact that she was conned uh, or there would be articles about other people that were conned by art fake art uh, or other articles that just supported her uh, stature in the art world at one time. It's a complex question. I think that, you know, Anne, with her pedigree of over 30 years now, 40 years in the art world, did she set out to maliciously con people and sell fake art? No. Uh, did she believe that there was a great discovery here? Yes. Uh, did she... Um, uh, did she, you know, get conned? She did. Should she have known better? Were there red flags? Yes. But when you put yourself in Anne Friedman's shoes, that every time she saw one of these paintings, she would push hard to get provenance. Provenance is, you know, the trail of the art, how it was created, where it was created, and who owned it uh, to ultimately find out. And she did go to experts. Experts would give her uh, vague responses. Those were good enough for Anne. In some cases, they were more than vague responses. They were experts that said, yes, it was real or looked real. Uh, and the art collectors themselves went along with it and said, yes, okay, that's good enough for me. I was buying from the Nodler Gallery, which to them was synonymous uh, to buying a diamond at Tiffany's. You got a letter from Tiffany's. They got a letter from the Nodler Gallery, and that was good enough for them. So, again, I think that, you know, the bottom line is, you know, should Anne have been more um, scrupulous with reference to these uh, this shadowy couple selling her art, perhaps. Uh, should the art collectors themselves have basically done more due diligence? Perhaps. It's a tricky story, but ultimately Anne Friedman was never charged with a crime. Now, you obviously have various art experts in the documentary and also those who took part in the fraud, Rosales, who's been convicted, and her boyfriend, who I believe is currently in Spain, and I understand that he has no plans to return to the U.S. anytime soon. Oh, no, no. If he came back to the United States, he would be arrested. Uh, they, you know, the U.S. has asked for extradition, and Spain basically told the U.S., uh, we'll deal with it through our own legal process. And... Uh, Carlos has never seen a day in jail. Obviously, we went to Lugo, Spain to interview him, and uh, his lawyer will suggest that he, le he lives a very uh, austere and, and, uh, and, and meager life. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure that's true, but uh, he, uh, uh, he's definitely a free man. I've got to say, I was quite surprised that he did agree to give an interview. Everybody wants to tell their story. And, you know, if, if you Google him or Ann Friedman or Glafira, then it's nothing but negative. And, and so within the breadth of a feature-length documentary, if you have the opportunity to tell your entire story and get it out there, then you're going to do it. And, you know, these are vain people, you know, who want to get their side of the story out there. Did you also attempt to speak to his girlfriend, Rosales? I did attempt to speak to Glafira many times. I found her family... Uh, and ultimately, her lawyer said that there were still some 
mitigating legal issues that would prevent her from going on camera. But she did, her lawyer did tell the New York Times when they published a story about this film that it, in due course, uh, she would uh, speak, but uh, she couldn't at this point. But her story, I mean, in, in her plea bargain, you know, she again assigns full responsibility to uh, Carlos, her partner, and not Ann Friedman, and basically said that he was, you know, physically and mentally abusive and controlling, and that she basically did as, as he instructed. I mean, the story itself, I still find utterly fascinating. From what you could tell, why you were interviewing various people, who was in on it? Well, look, I've always said there's a lot of blame that goes around in this film. Uh, aside from, you know, Carlos and Glafira and Paige and Quinn, you know, the, the true you know, trifecta. Uh, so you have Bonnie and Clyde and Glafira and Carlos. You have Paige and Quinn as the, the, you know, the artist who agrees to go along with this, who claims that he was duped, but, no, but sees his art on display at major art festivals. You have Anne Friedman as the portal for the art being sold. And then you have the collectors. These are all sophisticated business people, masters of their domains, people that have built empires, billionaires, who are agree to buy the art and accept the provenance. And these are not stupid people. And then you have the art consultants who are, who I think, you know, are definitely part of the blame because they have taught art collectors to buy with their ears and not their eyes. Gee, it's so important that you have this piece of art in your collection. This will increase in value. This is, uh, will give you great bragging rights. You'll be able to buy other art because you own this piece. Uh, and on and on and on. Your stature will increase. You will be considered an important art collector. And that's what consultants do, who generally make a commission on both ends. Uh, so they're, uh, they're part of the blame here. And then you have the experts who are generally paid experts who will look at a piece of work uh, and then give their opinion. And, and sometimes it's wrong. Quite often now, the foundations themselves, whether it's Pollock Krasner or the Daedalus Foundation that, that represents Robert Motherwell, have stopped giving opinions uh, because they, they were getting sued. And, and some of the fakes are just that good. The only way to tell if something's real uh, is one of two ways. An artist is standing next, there's a photograph of the artist standing next to the painting itself, or you authenticate the paintings through a forensic uh, process, which costs tens and tens of thousands of dollars, and most people don't want to do, which is doing, you know, pigmentation tests and whatnot. For many of us who don't go around buying art, I know that many who do buy, they usually buy it as an investment, don't they? They don't buy it as something pretty to hang on their walls. Well, I, you know, for, for many of the major high-end collectors, it's a little of both. I mean, you know, for, there's a group of people called the Mugrabis. They've cornered the Warhol market, and they're doing it for investments. They will, you know, they'll buy everything up, and then they'll release things and jack prices up. It's a game. For other people like billionaire financier Steve, Stephen Cohn. Uh, he's buying for bragging rights as well as, uh, no question, his, his collection and how values uh, will increase over time of the art. But it's a fool's game because, uh, you know, I know lots of people that have spent millions of dollars of art and it's worthless now. You just don't know. 
uh, ultimately because the mark the art market is often artificially inflated somebody decides that they're going to get behind an artist whether it's the gagosian gallery or somebody else and really you know drive the prices up get the best they can and then either sustain that artist's career or dump them so i always have said buy art because you love it buy art because of the way it makes you feel when you walk into that room uh, on where it's hung, not because 10 years from now, the value might go up. If it does, good for you. But at the end of the day, buy it because you love it. What was Anne's reaction to the film when she finally got to see the documentary? Well, I had hoped to bring Anne Friedman to Toronto for the uh, for its world premiere at the Hot Docs Film Festival. And of course, COVID ended that. Uh, and so she ultimately ended up seeing it as part of, I believe, uh, the Hamptons Film Festival, an online screening that she happened to see it. And uh, I, I know, I mean, she left me a, a rather vague voicemail about the editing, but she has since told other people that she didn't like it. And, you know, and that's too bad. I, I never promised Anne that this film would be a vindication. What I promised her was that she'd be able to tell the full breadth of her story and let and then I let the audience decide and some audience some members of the audience feel that you know she knew others feel that she was conned so I was going to give her that opportunity the full canvas pardon that pun to tell her entire story and I don't but I don't think there was ever pleasing Anne unless this documentary uh, focused on her and her alone being the huge victim versus everybody else. Now, I know many documentary directors, they tend to still stay in touch with their main characters in the documentary films. Are you still in touch with Anne? We, 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 we exchange pleasant emails with each other uh, about the art world. We don't discuss the film. I think she's, you know, she's kept the, the lines of communication open. This film will be released internationally in early 2021 on one of those famous streamers. I can't say where, but it's where everybody goes to watch film these days. And so uh, I imagine that will cause another stir with her, you know, at that point. And then we're also in the process of developing this uh, as a feature film. So that will, uh, that will also sort of bring her back into the spotlight. Since you finished filming, have there been any updates? Well, when I finished filming, there was another lawsuit that uh, was ultimately settled. Keep in mind that only one of, you know, of 60 paintings sold, only 11 people sued, which means that were tons of collectors who just said, I don't want to be embarrassed by this. So out of 11 people that sued, 11 were settled. One went to trial and was settled while it was uh, 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 amidst the trial. What was the greatest challenge for you making the film? I got very lucky that I, I, you know, in any documentary or any feature film, uh, scripted film, you want a, a, an incredible cast of characters. And I got that. I, I would have loved uh, to have Glafira and I would have loved to have Pei Shen Quinn. But ultimately, I was very happy that my cast was representative of, uh, you know, uh, a, a dealer, a, a criminal mastermind, a victim, a lawyer. I mean, it was all there, so I was happy about that. If, if any challenges I really had was in the editing because it was such a complex story, and when do you reveal to the public or the movie goer when things are a con and when 
you know, when do you introduce Pei Shen Quinn? So the editing was a process and longer than usual to basically unfold and get the Rubik's Cube to solid colors to tell the story. I think you and your editor did an amazing job. There was definitely still tension. I was certainly sitting on the edge of my seat trying to figure out who was in on it. Thank you. What's next? What what other documentaries do you have on the horizon? So I, I'm working on um, several uh, documentaries. I'm excited about what if you saw the movie The Lion. I'm I'm working on a documentary now, which really is a uh, a true life story of of, uh, of a of a young boy abandoned in India who goes on to become a superstar chef. I'm working on that. I'm working on a documentary about a uh, a serial criminal swindler who swindles women out of their money and has done this since the 80s. And so uh, lots of lots of interesting projects going on. Well, we look forward to seeing more when they come out. Barry Averidge, thank you for coming on to the Docs and More podcast. Uh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to the Docs and More podcast with Lovejeet Daliwal. If you enjoyed the show, review and subscribe to the series.